which I feel like everyone is, because in New York, we're always trying to find housing, you might have heard of something called the Landlord Special. Have you guys ever heard of that? The Landlord Special? So the la I, I see the landlords laughing, because they know the Landlord Special is the absolute bare bones minimum thing that the landlord's gonna do to get his apartment rented. I'm talking about the cheapest one coat white paint over the whole apartment. I'm talking they're painting over the, the outlet covers, they're painting over the window locks. You can't even get the window open because there's paint stuck to it. Painting over that roach in the corner. Maybe there, maybe there was a leak, you know, when it rained a lot last, last month. Like maybe there was a leak on the ceiling. Just paint over it. No one's gonna know, it's fine. Someone's going to rent it. Someone's going to rent it. But the problem with the landlord special <laughs> is that, you know, or the problem whenever we kind of cover something up without much care is that it might look pretty for a while, but eventually the problem's going to reveal itself. Eventually the problem's going to come out. Last week, Pastor Johnny honored us, came all the way to Brooklyn and spoke about God's amazing promise to King David. Now, King David was Israel's second king. Saul was the first. King David was Israel's second king. And during his reign, along with the reign of his son, King Solomon, during that time, God was giving everything. Israel was at, the, at its height of success and fame and popularity, God was giving every battle into David's hand. You guys know that song by DJ Khaled, all I do is win, 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 right? That was Israel. That was Israel during the time of King David. Look it up, you're gonna see, look it up. It seemed like at that time that God's purpose for Israel to bring his name, fame, and glory amongst all the nations, it seemed like it was being fulfilled. But that is until we fast forward several hundred years to today's passage. We're going to fast forward to Israel's last king, King Zedekiah, who was a king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom Israel had split. There's a, there was a northern part and a southern part. King Zedekiah was ruling in the southern kingdom. And we're going to see that that success and favor from God did not last. You see, instead of keeping the covenant that Israel had made with God through Moses at Mount Sinai, instead of obeying God's law, they failed to keep it over and over and over again. We're going to see that that sin that originated with Adam and Eve still persisted in the hearts of the people known as Israel, and that God's chosen nation was going to reap what she sowed. So let's open up our Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11. Now, if you've never read the, the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, it's pretty much the same historical narrative as what's recorded in First and Second Kings. It's the same thing, except the Chronicles comes from the viewpoint of that southern kingdom I mentioned, and it has a lot more theology. If any of y'all are fans of like 
Game of Thrones or sagas where everyone's killing each other for power. Read Kings and Chronicles. <laughs> Read about the monarchy of Israel. It's, it's, it's a good time. It's all right. Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 11. I'm reading the ESV translation. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we do every Sunday, we thank you that history has been recorded for us to learn from. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your purposes and understand who you are from today's message. Lord, I ask you would speak through me Lord, that your power would convict and your power would open eyes. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as many of you probably could tell, today's passage records the lowest point in Israel's history. This is a point when the great nation of Israel a nation that was made up of the descendants of Abraham, a people that God freed from slavery. This is the point where they were destroyed. 
Now I mentioned there were two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to Assyria. They were already done. Now the southern kingdom is taken over by Babylon. And, and I love Chronicles for this reason, because it's not just a historical record of what was happening. The Chronicles tells us what was happening spiritually in the hearts of the people with the kings, the priests. Let's start with King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, the text says he was doing what was evil in the sight of God. And not just the king, not just the ruler of the nation, but all the officers of the priests. So all the priests, all the religious leaders that should have been leading people to God, they were unfaithful. And it goes on to say that the people, the people were exceedingly unfaithful. Everyone was participating in the rejection and rebellion against God. It says, this passage says they were following the abominations of the nations. That means instead of displaying the glory of the true God, the true creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were following and bowing down and worshiping all the false gods of all the nations around them. The text says that they polluted the house of the Lord. That means in the temple of God, where God's presence dwelled, they erected idols. They erected shrines in the house of God. There were false gods in the temple, and they bowed down to them. They were committing adultery against God. They were violating that first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. You know, the scene that is depicted here, it's a sobering reminder to us that the problem of sin is not just an individual problem. Sin is not just the wrongdoing that we might commit every day that we confess before we go to bed. It's not just, I said a harsh word today when I was irritable to my brother. It's not just like, oh, I told a white lie to get out of work, God forgive me. It's not just, oh, I didn't keep my eyes away from that website again. You see, the problem is sin is cultural. Sin is corporate. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? I mean that sin is so prevalent in human beings that it is essentially a part of society. It's a normalized way of being, and it masks itself so well that oftentimes we can't tell the difference between the church and the world. Sin is insidious. Our passage starts off describing, you start, it starts off with an individual, Zedekiah's sin, but then it goes on and we see the depth of the sin, it goes on to say that everyone, everyone was unfaithful to God. Everyone had turned their backs on him. We might ask, how, how did this happen? How could such evil have occurred to the point where everyone was okay with idols being placed in the temple of God? How did that happen? It's so clear. And it happened because the breaking of God's law became normal. 
God's people were doing what the people who were not Israel were doing. Instead of Israel influencing the nations, they had become influenced by the nations. They had been influenced away from him. And this is the slippery slope that the church has naively ignored because we've been traumatized by hellfire preaching and fundamentalists making women wear dresses, doomsday warnings, condemnation if you have a sip of wine. We've been traumatized, so we recoil against that. We recoil so much that at any hint of legalism, we would rather compromise God's truth than appear judgmental. And I get it. I get it. The church has not always been good at speaking the gospel with love. I know that. I know many of us are still struggling through church hurt, through church trauma, through church pain. I know many of us have been hurt by the communities that we were a part of. And I know there are rules that communities have instituted that God did not say. But we have to be careful that we don't recoil so much that we end up on the other side of wrong, where we sacrifice truth for grace. See, God is not a God we get to design. It's not like a little Lego figure where we get to pick the aspects we like and the aspects we don't like. And his commands are not suggestions just because we've been forgiven for breaking them. Our God is a holy God, and we are called, like Israel, to be set apart from the world. Church, if we don't recognize the gods of our culture, if we don't see them, if we're not examining ourselves and our community, if we're not bold enough to call out our brother or sister because they've gone astray, then we're going to stumble and we're gonna cause others to stumble. You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see the sin in our culture, the sin in our society. I've heard that asking someone to describe their culture is like asking a fish to describe water. Like, we don't know, right? We're swimming in it, we're swimming in it. We're breathing it in through the shows that we watch, the news that comes up, the talk at the water cooler, the ads on the subway, social media, like we're breathing in the culture. I remember for a few years while back, I had stopped watching TV, not because of any moral righteousness. I was addicted to the internet, but <laughs> I had stopped watching TV. I had stopped watching TV, and after a while, I caught a rerun of a sitcom that back then I thought was pretty wholesome. And I was shocked by what the women were wearing. I was shocked by how casually sex was talked about. I went to see an action movie, and I loved action movies. I went to see an action movie, but and I had to shut my eyes because I had become, I was no longer desensitized to the violence that I saw on screen. It had been so long since I had seen something like that. And instead of being entertained by it, it made me think of the wars and suffering, the real life evils that were happening overseas. You know, when things don't bring glory to God, when they surround us, when we're constantly exposed and like fish 
literally breathing in feces. We forget what holiness looks like and the lines get blurry. Some of the things, this is gonna be hard, but some of the things that I've seen become normal amongst Christians because it's normal in the world are divorce. It's so common. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage. 95%, I looked this up, 95% of Americans are having sex outside of a marriage covenant. 95%, and no one wants to talk about it. It's like an open secret. Like, you've done it, I've done it, we're all doing it, and it grieves the Lord. Abortions, nationalism, the partnership between the church and the state is revolting. The bowing down to political figures, like, what are we doing? Gossip, slander, everyone else is doing it. The love of wealth and comfort along with our neglect of the poor. Church, there's something wrong when there is someone sitting at our corner dealing with mental illness and homelessness and we're walking by him, not even giving him any, any attention in our $100 sneakers, like something is off. Something is off with us. We hate on those that we will deem as enemies because we're so fixated on their sin even though Jesus explicitly told us to love them. We value our own protection instead of showing hospitality to strangers. Who are we, church? Who are we? Has following Jesus made us any different than how the world would respond? You see, Israel didn't look like Israel anymore. They just looked like all the other nations. They were committing the same sin, and I fear that sometimes Christians are influenced just the same. We follow our own wisdom, which is coming from the world, but we don't always know that because our Bibles are dusty. So we don't know what God's thoughts are. We don't know, and even when we read them, we dismiss them as if God is not serious, as if God is not serious. I have heard so many times people telling me, I know that's what God says, but. I know that's what the scripture says. I saw that in the Bible, but, but. And I'm not saying that everything is black and white. I'm not saying that we're, that we're condemned if we don't live perfect Christian lives. That doesn't make sense. Jesus knows we can't do that. I'm not saying that we're idolizing our virginities. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the church has made a lot of things lighter. That which God has warned us is much, much darker. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? We don't live in a, in a black and white world. I know that. I know that and God knows that. But we gotta be careful at how we're understanding how we live. And I imagine I imagine for the average man or woman back then in Israel, it also didn't seem like a big deal to go to the temple to worship God and also along the way throw in a few sacrifices to another idol. It's probably not a big deal. Cover your bases. Everyone is doing it. I imagine they didn't think it was such a big deal because after all, 
They're God's people. And all of God's people were doing the same thing. That's why they persecuted God's prophets. They didn't want to hear it. They killed those who would warn them of the truth. Because the truth is always hard to hear, especially when the truth makes us feel bad and we don't like it. And what happens is that we tend to choose our own version of reality where it's okay, where we're okay, over the word of God that tells us that we're sinning against him. We deny what he says because our spirits are against him. Let's look back. King Zedekiah is described in so many negative terms. Not only did he do evil, but he didn't humble himself before God's prophet. So he was arrogant. He was rebellious. He broke his word that he swore before God. He stiffened his neck. We've heard this in scripture before. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart. That means he would not turn to look at God. He did not want to hear what God had to say. The people of Israel, it says that they mocked the prophets. They despised their words. They scoffed at them. The prophets come to speak the words of God. So the Israelites were not just mocking a man, they were mocking God. You see, in addition to their idolatry, in addition to their acts, their physical acts of evil, their posture toward God was one of contempt and disrespect. And yet they would probably never think so. And I feel like it would be hard for us to admit it to. The Israelites changed what God had said to a version that they would rather believe. The passage mentions the prophet Jeremiah. We call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He wrote, Jer he wrote the book of Jeremiah in Lamentations. He's weeping, he's lamenting because he's watching. He lived through the destruction of his nation. Jeremiah was warning the people, he was warning the Israelites, his own people, of the impending judgment that was going to come because of their sin. And they persecuted him. And they chose to listen to false prophets that were prophesying at the same time. See, during Jeremiah's time, there were other prophets, other voices telling the Israelites, it's okay, it's going to be okay, God has got us. And that sounds a lot better than what Jeremiah was saying. And this happens today. Paul the Apostle warned to his disciple, warned to Timothy, that people are not only going to come to deny sound teaching, they're not going to want to hear it, but they'll accumulate teachers who will tell them the things that they want to hear. We deny God's truth and we prefer our version of reality. And our version tells us that happiness, our happiness, is the ultimate goal. It tells us that God will bless anything that we want to do. You're not happy with that woman, divorce her, go with another woman. That sounds like something God would want me to do, right? Because that would make me happy. See, in our version, sin is okay because God will forgive us anyway. And like Israel, we should reap what we sow. At the end of last year, when we were back in Luke, we went over a passage where Jesus challenges the people with this idea that they needed to count the cost of what it meant to follow him 
before they committed to being his disciple. I remember a story a friend told me. He told me that he was evangelizing to his young daughter, and she was probably like five or six, and he was sharing the gospel with her. And he was asking his daughter if she wanted to accept Christ, if she wanted to follow Jesus. And she said yes. Now at this point, every parent would probably be falling off their chair, like just rejoicing. They'd be telling all their people. They'd be booking the baptism date. But my friend was like, no, I want to make sure she knows what she's agreeing to. So he told her, he was like, hold up, hold up. He was like, he told her, if you follow Jesus, if you become a Christian, if Jesus tells you to give up your candy, you have to do it. And the girl thought about it, and she didn't want to follow Jesus. You see, many of us Christians are playing both sides. We commit our lives to him, but we don't really know what that means. And I feel like that happens to a lot of us. We get ushered into the community, but we don't really know what it means not to just receive the blessings of eternal life, like hallelujah, anyone would want that, but also to submit to Jesus as our Lord. We love to receive from him, but to change our worldview into something that might offend the world outside That's a different story. We'd rather believe our own version, and what happens is that our worldview and our understanding becomes this weird mix, this weird mix of what we've learned from the world and what we're learning on the pulpit on Sundays. And the bad news from Eden, and now through the history of Israel, now we see it, is that we humans cannot change. We can't reverse our posture to one that seeks God. Our necks are not only stiff, like we're stiff, we can't turn from the way that we're going. We're stiff like Zedekiah, we are stuck. We are stuck on our path. Sin is in us and it's everywhere around us. And that's why the ultimate cause of Israel's destruction and our potential destruction is not so much our sin, but our rejection of God's offer of healing and reconciliation. See, there was no way for Israel to clean up her house. There was no way. Hundreds of years of under these kings, there was no way she was going to clean up the temple. You could check, check the history. They tried many times to take down the idols, take down the, the places where they worshipped these false gods. They always sprang back up. See, they weren't seeking to follow God and stumbling and and falling. They outright rejected his word. They outright rejected his prophets. So for us, our path to destruction is really less about how grievous, how awful our sins are, and ultimately about how we respond to Jesus. It's like this. Let's say we went hiking with our friends and we slipped and we fell off the cliff and we're hanging on. It doesn't matter if we wore hiking boots, it doesn't matter if we were prepared, it doesn't matter if we ignored the group text and showed up in flip-flops. We're hanging off the cliff now, and whether we live or die is gonna depend on if we grab our friend's hand or not. Does that make sense? 
Like sin is not going to go away. Our situation's not going to change. It's impossible to change. Like it's everywhere around us. The choice to perish or not is not going to be based on what we did, whether our body count is in the double digits or we posted hateful messages on social media. It's going to be based on how we respond to the offer of salvation. It's too late. We're hanging off the cliff already. It's as though we've been bitten by a deadly viper. It's too late. The poison is seeping through our system. Whether or not we live is going to be based on whether we take the antidote or not. Does that make sense? See, our destruction is ultimately going to be based on our rejection or our acceptance of the offer of life and reconciliation with God that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross when he took all our sins on him. See, there was no hope for ancient Israel. There was no hope. They entered into a covenant that they could not keep. But for us, there's a better covenant offered, one that's not based on us, one that's not based on how we have lived, but based on God's faithfulness to uphold. Our salvation's no longer ensured by how well we've battled the culture of sin, which we will fail at over and over again, but by Jesus, who mediated a sure contract. Whatever sin we have or we will commit, he has taken on to himself. It's like we were struggling with our finances. We're struggling with our debt. We can't pay our rent. We can't put food on the table. The electricity has been turned off. The IRS is knocking at the door. The repo man's going to take our car. But we have a friend who's a billionaire. <laughs> but we have a best friend who's a billionaire. And he says that if he's and he says that he's got it. If he says that he's got it, if he says that he's got us, we know he's got us. We know he's got us. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And because our friend is more financially wise than we are, we're not off the hook. We shouldn't have been buying that stuff. Because our friend is more financially wise than we are, He's going to help us figure out our finances. He's going to get our budget straight. We're going to be able to live better, rightly. We're going to know how to buy groceries because he's going to help us. Because he's going to help us. And that's the hope that we have that Israel did not have. That through the Holy Spirit who lives inside us, that no longer is God's presence in a physical building, but that the spirit God has come to dwell within us, that means we can resist the tide of sin and culture. That means we can. The spirit will illuminate the scriptures so that we can see his truth. And we can discern between what is coming from the world, what is coming from our families, what's coming from our trauma, what's coming from our history, and what's coming from God. See, the spirit will help us. And we can recognize his truth and we can follow him. And it's going to be the spirit who's going to encourage us when it's hard to live differently than everyone else around us. We will bring glory to God 
as we testify to his goodness by the way that we live. We are the bride of Christ. We are his holy priesthood. We are his beloved children, and we are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. You see, this is something that God has said, and it is not conditional. So I'm going to close by calling us to examine ourselves. Let's pray and search. Ask him to reveal the ways where we have been following the wisdom of the world. Let's ask him, tell us, God, help us discern what we've, what we've mixed up with your truth. Let's ask him to help our eyes stay focused on Christ, not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. Let him convict us as we read his scriptures, not dismissing his word, opening that Bible that's been on our bookshelf that we haven't taken down. Let's confess to him the sins that we've committed that we know he'll be faithful to forgive. You see, because of Jesus, we will not reap what we've sowed. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you had such patience with your people and that you have such patience with your church whom you love so much. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way that is irrevocable, that you have made a way for us to be reconciled with you that will never be taken away. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word is true, that we can stand on that word, we can stand on your promises, that we have salvation through Christ. We thank you, Lord, that despite our sin, that you have had mercy on us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.